This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man. <laughs> Boy! I go by Jessica Quaz for short. So I am one of the co-hosts of Second Chance Movies. It's a podcast where we rewatch movies and decide if they deserve a second chance. Um, so we take movies that were either you know, great, awful, polarizing, kind of those movies where it's like, I hated this, but everyone else loved it. What did I miss? And we revisit them and see what they're like nowadays. Um, And so, yeah, I co-host that with my friend Joe Harper. We're pretty new, but you can find us. um, We have uh, visual episodes on YouTube and wherever else you're listening to podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this, you can find us. So we're not just going for only bad movies, you know, we're, we're going for movies that like the divisive because Sin City is, you know, depending on your level of violence you can handle is pretty divisive. I loved Sin City when it came out. I was obsessed with it. And so we just kind of wanted to revisit it to be like, is it as awesome as we thought? And you'll have to listen to the episode to find out if it is. <laughs> We drop our audio episodes every Sunday and then YouTube Sundays as well. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at Two Chance Movies on Instagram and Second Chance Movies Pod on Twitter. Our podcast has our own letterbox where we uh, do a little bit more detailed descriptions on, on the episodes we've covered. Little Hands says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Hello and welcome to 94 Chill, the podcast, the podcast dedicated to the ideal running time of, say, 90 minutes, you know, two hours if edited for television. I'm your host, Cool Movies Darth is the handle that I'm trying to get over. You can find me on Letterboxd at CM Darth. I think that sounds a little cooler than Russ Stevens. Wish I would have known that one back when I was wrestling full time, underemployed, I would like to say. Always got the gear bag in the car. If you got a booking around Central Illinois, let me know. Otherwise, this week, I finally am able to deliver on the Spaceballs content that I've been promising the past couple of weeks. Last week, I had a great conversation expressing our admiration for Mel Brooks's parody feature and just a general gushing over Star Wars. My guest was Jessica Quaz from Second Chance Movies. Unfortunately, I am still learning how to really optimize podcast recording, and my half of the conversation was lost. Just bear with me. I want to get her stuff out there in a bit. I'll let her go and gush about Spaceballs for us. And after that, we'll let my older sister, the Poetic Critic on Letterboxd, that's the Poetic Critic, all one word, give us the context of the time and the history She loves Spaceballs too, but it was not a success in 1987, as far as anybody could tell, especially her Starlog back issues. Star Wars just wasn't that big of a thing after Jedi. I should have pressed her on figuring out how did it come back to prominence. Another conversation for another podcast. Perhaps I will talk her into watching Star Wars The Clone Wars, the movie from 2008. Until that time, let me just wrap things up. We're getting that three-minute mark in the intro. You can follow me on Twitter at CatBusRuss. You could DM me on Twitter if you want to be on 90 for Chill, the podcast. 
All you need is an actor, a director, a movie, or a theme. As long as we focus on sub 100 minute movies, I think we have a show. Just need about 30 minutes of your time at the very least. You can email me also with that request to rustthebus07 at gmail.com, where I'm also accepting advice on how to get my own movie, a low budget zombie professional wrestling comedy, Main Event of the Dead, out of developmental hell. But that, again, another time perhaps. Thanks again for coming to the show, and I hope you enjoy. There it is, Planet Druidian. And underneath the air shield, 10,000 years of fresh air. We must get through that air shield. We will, sir. Once we kidnap the princess, we can force her father, King Roland, to give us the combination to the air shield, thereby destroying Planet Druidia and saving Planet Spaceball. Everybody got that? Hey, I respect Mel Brooks. I... I appreciate a lot of his movies um i just like a good old-fashioned mel brooks parody um what's interesting and kind of on your point with Spaceballs is the concept being like this fantasy sci-fi world we can go as big as we want with the parodies which i think is what makes it so unique in terms of like typical parody movies is that we have so much room to play, and they do. They go crazy with it. I think it was unique in its inception. Um, I think also now we see, I mean, not lately, thank God, but, you know, like 10 years ago we were seeing all sorts of parody movies, like, you know, Meet the Spartans or Disaster Movie or all these weird sort of parody movies that I think were, like... And I don't know, I didn't make the movies, but I feel like we're trying to recreate the magic of making this big, over-the-top, like, see, this is funny, we're saying weird things, and we're doing weird things, and it, you know, it just didn't work. (laughs) See, that is what's interesting, is, you know, Mel Brooks is up there with, like, this, you know, one of the greatest, and, yeah, his filmography is not as vast as you would think it is, Um, which I find interesting. I will say, and this is my opinion, is that I do think he is, like, the godfather of parodies. I personally, like, in terms of movies specifically, don't find any other movies to have that, like, it factor that he brings to his movies. Young Frankenstein is just, it's one that I could watch every day and enjoy the hell out of it. So I, I just have, I honestly, like, I have so much respect for him. No matter where Spaceballs kind of falls in his filmography, I just think he's just so, he was so unique for his time, I, I think, and consistently just being over the top and silly in a time when that wasn't, like, the norm, you know? So, and I, I, I think that's why I do appreciate Spaceballs, too, is because it's like, God, this was just wacky. What were we doing here? <laughs> what I appreciate about Spaceballs is, I so I a little bit of background. And Empire Strikes Back is my favorite movie. As a kid, I grew up watching the originals. I was obsessed with them. Action figures, literally watched it on repeat. I had like the awesome VHS trilogy. Like, I was obsessed. And it took me a really long time to watch Spaceballs because one, I was. I didn't understand what a parody was when I was that young. Um, and I just like the 
the idea of taking this world that I'm so familiar with that I'm in love with and just making it funny in a way that's not like demeaning the content. It's just making it like wacky as hell. And I just find so much like pure joy out of it. Even if, you know, the quality isn't as amazing and some of the jokes are just downright dumb. It's just, I still find so much joy out of it. Did Mel Brooks actually watch Star Wars? I feel like he probably watched it once and then had some writer pals be like, oh yeah, no, I know this movie. <laughs> this time around, because I, I hadn't seen this movie in a very long time, this time around the other references to sci-fi movies were just glaring in my face and I loved it. Like, of course, I knew the alien one. Then we have, you know, the Temple of Doom. Then we have Planet of the Apes. I was like, this is, I love it. I love it. I mean, the cast is just, you look back and it's wild. Like Bill Pullman, like you said, John Candy, Joan Rivers, uh, Rick Moranis, who I always have respect for, always. It's just the people that they got to do this. And you could, I think, you can tell while watching it that they knew exactly what they were doing and they were game for it. Like there was no like, what the fuck is this parrot? Like there's no hesitation. They just go for it and they're like, yeah, let's be wacky. It's just like I said earlier, the, there's just something delightful and silly and like this nice escapism, especially nowadays where you can just watch this movie and and giggle at stupidity and and kind of wholesome stupidity like it's, so for me I I can't I agree I don't think they did anything that's so wrong that the movie's you know not good uh, but tweaks here and there sure but yeah for this it's just like I just had fun I just had fun watching it baseballs is a good 90 minutes or so just time to enjoy yourself and be wacky and silly <laughs> Spaceballs, the movie. Princess Vespa spaceship within range, sir. Good. What's going on? It's either the 4th of July, or someone's trying to kill us. Now we will show her who is in charge of this galaxy. If you do not give me the combination to the air shield, Dr. Slotkin will give your daughter back her old nose. Only one man and his trusted companion can save planet Druidia from disaster. Okay, Eagle Five, coming in. Home Star. First, they must learn the secrets of yogurt. Yogurt? I am the keeper of a greater magic. The Force? No, the Schwartz. Avoid capture on a distant planet. Hell up the cold the desert, you hear me? Oh!
Welcome back to 90 for Chill, the podcast. Looks like I've seen my audio actually recording, so this is going to be gold or at least silver. Definitely not platinum. Not to discredit the poetic critic, my guest this week. And uh, she's coming on to finally deliver the spaceball content I've been promising the last couple of weeks. How have you been? I'm fine. Very good. Anything new movie-wise with you, Rory? I'm not sure there's anything you'd be interested in. Most of this past week, I was working with uh, stuff they're offering on Criterion Channel this month, like the uh, Art House Animation Programming. Mm-hmm. Well, um, if it means anything to anybody, uh, I don't know if it'll still be going on uh, the, on the... 13th when this episode drops but currently itunes is actually running a lot of uh samurai movies from the criterion collection uh for about eight dollars a piece and but with uh the big problem with uh, itunes right now and i definitely need myself a new copy is Spaceballs is at 15 bucks um granted it's a 4k uh transition or adaptation whatever the uh rendering whatever um but unless you're going to go and download down and sign up for showtime uh i'm stuck with my dvd which doesn't really look too good with uh hdr or full hdr um dynamic range in a 4K situation, never mind like the Rafe DVD I have, doesn't have subtitles in English. So, you know, so it's a little warm at my apartment right now because the AC is off and just quickly rewatched it again. So, when was the last time you uh, got around to watching Spaceballs? I didn't finally get to watching the film in full until in full about until about two years ago. Because I think like a lot of, probably like a lot of people, I we came to this movie on cable back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you watch movies on cable, you don't always watch them from stem to stern as it were. Right. Oh, no. Um, heck, there's plenty of movies, even in the, uh, I guess when you have kids, not to say that I have kids, hopefully, Um but watching, I ended up seeing a lot of movies, uh, bits and pieces when I was hanging out with my friend Stephanie and when her little daughter was, you know, before a definite toddler watching uh, Coraline. I've probably seen the entire movie, just never from beginning to end. Right. And, and again, why there's no discount on Coraline right now. Like it's a Keith David movie. Every Keith David movie is on discount somewhere. But so I don't know. What is your take on Spaceballs? I guess is really the guts of the matter. I like Spaceballs a lot. I don't think it's quite up to the level of the prime work Mel Brooks did back in the 1970s with his parody films. But on the other side of the coin, everything I've read suggested it can't, people came 
down pretty hard on it back in 1987, and its reputation seems to have gone up a bit since then. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I agree. Uh, I told a story to uh, Jessica when we were recording that I believe it was our uh, cousin who lives out in California now who introduced the idea of the film to me. Now, this was you know, like 1987, 88, like after a uh, fireworks display, we're just driving back to Mossville or wherever the other family's car was. And it kind of threw me off because we definitely knew he wasn't a Star Wars fan. Neither of our cousins were. <laughs> and, uh, but I swear he was telling me about this movie. As I say, I'm trying to recall a conversation from 34 years ago now. <laughs> And I actually tried to hit him up when I was trying to save this uh, concept for a podcast. And he actually kind of said, no, it couldn't have been him. But on the bright side, he has gotten around to uh, Star Wars. And he credits me with getting him introduced to professional wrestling. So, Um, So I think the world seems balanced. Now... I guess another question then would be, do you have to be a Star Wars fan to really appreciate Spaceballs? That is a good question, because I think one of the reasons the movie works as well as it does is that it does hang together pretty well as a straight comedy sci-fi story. A lot of it is funnier if you know the specific references they're going for, but it's not the exact kind of recreation we've kind of been used to seeing in affectionate parodies of franchises like Star Wars or Disney in the years since. Well, since you brought up Disney, that was one thing I discovered on iTunes today is that the Black Cauldron is in 4K now. I think that's that's worth celebrating, but I'll digress on that one. I know you're not too big on the mid-80s disney films i mean not well not the black cauldron no but well i've never pictured as much of a great mouse detective fan either it's that movie was fine but i have never felt a need to revisit it since 1987 or so Mm. well i'm sure we saw it in 93 i think that was it was around just long enough to uh get well we saw it we saw it three times in theaters yeah i know in 86 and one more time uh, in, in movies in the park. Okay. Oh, I thought it may have survived the reissue period. They did do a reissue in 92. Okay. No, but, that's, that seems a little early. I thought it was a seven-year rotation on those. but They started speeding it up by that point. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as you said, uh, with Spaceballs, it doesn't uh, show as much affection to the um to the source material and i didn't know if that kind of just on this recent rewatch it, being so contemporary with clothing and characters um do you think that's part of the joke or it was just not just kind of like well, let's just get this in the can well it is i think i get what you're trying to say here is that it it isn't an that in a that it's not an exact parody it is very 80s tied especially to what our understanding of star wars was at that point 
but I don't think it hurts the film all that much. If anything, I do think what makes the movie work as well, really well, is that it does work as a story. It has some very likable characters, both the good guys and the bad guys. And it takes the time to basically work through all the major plot beats of the first, the original Star Wars, New Hope, as a lot of people like to call it now. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they also work in some elements from the first two sequels they'd done by that point and makes them work well in context. It works pretty smoothly given how much it's trying to cover, to be honest. Well, it's kind of like, uh, dare I say, Ralph Bashke's uh, Lord of the Rings, in a sense. Well, that's one way of looking at it. I, I, that, it's not the comparison I would have come up with, but I kind of mm. see what you mean. Yeah. So, um, I guess I would kind of, when I made that note uh, about that, uh, the contemporariness of it, I don't know. I think the joke maybe, since it is so contemporary, it just makes the plausibility of Spaceballs, the sequel, the search for more money, as I say, plausible, just because of that. Well, yeah, they did try doing an animated series a few years ago. Yes, which I haven't seen anything good. Uh, Right. That didn't go over well. But it is interesting to look at, and this might have affected how it was received in 1987, is where the Star Wars fandom was at the time. Because by 1987, there was kind of a feeling Star Wars was just kind of in the can as it were mm-hmm. it for those who don't know where the franchise was at that point in 1986 uh starlog actually had one of its cover stories on one issue because i had a few old starlogs back in the 90s because you could order back issues back then pretty easily and they happened to have a little piece that was asking if the star wars fandom had just died out in 1986 for reference at that point uh, the saturday morning shows droids and ewoks had wrapped up their runs weren't those only a season apiece i thought uh ewoks lasted two okay um and of course you know we i guess they had a lot of love for the ewoks uh since they had two tv movies as well Yeah, they had the TV, there were the Ewoks TV movies, and there were the cartoons. But otherwise, after Return of the Jedi, there really wasn't a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really a book line. There were no plans to do further movies. Lucas had been moving on to a lot of other projects in the meantime. Well, uh, also, I don't know if this would affect it at all, but hadn't the films finally been released on vhs by this point because i thought it was um, about 86 when the first real set of them came out uh return to jedi didn't make it to vhs until 1987 i believe okay so i'm just saying or that at least that was when it finally got to hbo yes i definitely can attest to that portion because i i thought we were 
kind of drowning out our little baby brother by watching those movies frequently. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That We must have been doing that around that time. But it, it was a thing. The, the movies had, you know, they'd had their day. They'd made it to VHS. They'd been on network. Most of them, the first two had been on network television by this point. And there wasn't much of a novelty if it wasn't an ongoing thing. I don't think, and I think the fact that the post Return of the Jedi stuff mostly having to do with the Ewoks might not have helped. I mean, right. there were, we saw the Ice Capades edition that had Ewoks in it. Uh, that, was be, that was before I started my pennant collection, so. <laughs> yeah, but we yeah. saw it. Okay. And in, by 1987, well, just tell it just tells you, know, you that He Man Live was a little more. I got a little more invested in then. <laughs> yeah, that was in '87. I remember yes. that pretty yeah. well. But it, it goes to show how much had come and gone since that time. Because Return of the Jedi was huge in 1983, but then in 1984, you for if you were kid culture, you were moving on to depending on what your tastes were, you had your Cabbage Patch Kids, He-Man was reaching its peak, and She-Ra was coming up shortly in 85. Transformers came along in 84. G.I. Joe, Joe came out, yeah. got the ri- revival of G.I. Joe in 84. Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff occupying the attention of kids where while at the movies, we had all these other new blockbusters springing up. You know, 84 alone had Ghostbusters and Gremlins and kind of the. Well, uh, and Temple of Doom. So, I mean, Lucas had obviously moved on by that point. Yeah. There there were a lot of other options out there. People talk today about how we don't have a monoculture because we all have lots more options than we used to. And it is true we do have more video games and we have the internet and stuff like that. But if you want it, not everybody watched all the same stuff all the time in the mid 80s. We still, the 80s was the time where cable was starting to take off in those communities where, you know, people could afford it. So we're VCRs. We're slowly getting into the idea of buying videos rather than just renting them well the trick was buying two vcrs our uncle showed us that (laughs) well however you want to do it but (laughs) at the time but there were a lot of other options kids had in the mid 80s and for adults star wars was fun but it wasn't the nigh religion it's become so basically George Lucas had the right idea saying, oh, this is a kid movie when justifying the shortcomings of Phantom Menace. I don't know if he's... I don't like the idea of saying something is for kids to exercise poor quality in terms of scripting or directing or anything like that. Mm. But it is true. We just didn't take things so darn seriously back then. You would... I was reading a medium piece about about how in you know in the new tens we saw nerd culture kind of take over the world and that we've been sore winners about it 
And, you know, you wouldn't have had arguments like the Marvel fans versus Martin Scorsese back in the 80s. Nobody was trying, like this writer said, nobody was trying to argue that A View to a Kill or Rambo was as good as uh, Out of Africa or Amadeus. Okay, no, 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 no. Every child whose parents just left them alone with the VCR or the cable box would definitely argue Rambo over Amadeus. I wasn't talking about kids arguing this. I was talking about adults. Well, with our internet now, how many of these little brats, I mean, have become trolls? How many of these brats are trolls? You know, that's all I'm suggesting. I think I see where you're coming from. I mean, kids are learning how to type at far earlier ages. Right. Now, going back to 1987 and why Spaceballs wasn't received very well then, Comedy was very competitive in the 1980s. For for oh, all eight, the mythology, all, all I could really think of is Weekend at Bernie's, Mannequin. I didn't think 87 was that great a year. In other words, um, Dragnet, well, not, maybe not individual year. 1987. What I've been kind of looking back on years to the 80s, and 87 is one of the less impressive years on the whole. I mean. The biggest film that year was Three Men and a Baby. Right. And this is uh, one of the years that we didn't have a $100 million film, correct? I'm not sure that was the case. But at the same time, it was not the most exciting year going. I mean, the other big hits were films like Beverly Hills Cop, Part 2. Yeah. That sort of thing. I mean, you did have your RoboCop here and your Princess Bride there, but... Ah, Living Daylights, my introduction to James Bond, because That's true. dad wasn't going to take mom to that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, but going back to the comedy thing, 87 is not an outstanding year for comedy, but there was still a lot of it. And the 80s were a very serious comedy decade. In a way, as much mythologizing as we do for new Hollywood of the 1970s, it's arguably not a great decade for comedies compared to other genres. Oh, oh no. You had Mel Brooks and you had Woody Allen. That was really the two big names. I mean, there are other, there were other filmmakers who worked in comedy, but yeah. not all the time. Well, like Hal Ashby comes to mind. Right. There, yeah. That name. Um, uh, Harold and Maude being there were among yeah. his comedies. I haven't seen Shampoo yet, but I've heard um, that. Right. Um, what was Billy Wilder still working in the seventies? Um, occasionally, but yeah. it's generally not seen as his best decade. Oh no, no. Uh, was he the one married to Julie Andrews, or am that was, I? Was Blake Edwards? Okay, well there you and go. Blake That's Edwards who I was going to. Be... Well, yeah. Blake Edwards. This was kind of his comeback decade because he he started off on completely the wrong foot with uh, Darling Lily. Right. No, it uh it hit home for him with Victor Victoria, correct? Um Victor Victoria was kind of the climax of his comeback in the mm-hmm. early eighties. Because in nineteen seventy-five they revived the Pink Panther movies. Yes. That's why I was uh and, why I was trying to it, get to him. <laughs> right. And that goes from kind of strength to strength until he gets to Victor Victoria. And then the bottom falls out when he tries to keep the Pink Panther franchise going without Peter Sellers. 
Mm-hmm. So there yeah, were a few... I mean, he just couldn't talk Steve Martin into doing it at that point. <laughs> hey, I saw I saw most of the Pink Panther remake on the on a bus heading back from Chicago. I can't say it was too bad, honestly. Jean Reno as the sidekick. I mean, it's worthwhile. But anyway, uh, 70s comedy does have some standout material, but it wasn't, although people were going to comedies and stuff, I mean, Neil Simon, it was oh. a big decade for Neil Simon movies. Yep. But oh, uh, he was a writer rather than a director. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, when it comes to Neil Simon, besides for the uh, odd couple, I mean, I'd rather see his stuff on stage, but. Yeah. But. There were, I mean, there were a lot of successful comedies in the 70s, but a lot of them aren't as well remembered or acclaimed as the dramas or the horror films or the art films. Right. It was a competitive decade. And the 80s kind of saw big comebacks. At, at the end of the 70s, things loosened up a bit with stuff like Animal House. Yeah, John Landis and... and- yeah, John. Yeah, John Landis. Uh, Robert Zemeckis starts doing directorial efforts with "I Want to Hold Your Hand" in '78, and then used cars in '80, which is mm-hmm. oh, just uh, one of those that I really wanted to give the five stars to on Letterboxd, but uh, I gotta, I gotta fix my numbers, I guess. <laughs> so, but between that and the whole Saturday Night Live boom, there's suddenly this big push for comedy in the 80s if you look at the top 10 for any given year you see all sorts of comedies and not just the ones we still watch today or the ones we automatically think of when we think of 80s comedies like in 86 you had crocodile dundee came in just a few million behind top gun to be the biggest film of 1986 it it spent two months at the top of the american box office chart yeah, we really uh, slept on Paul Hogan. Um, now I'm thinking, though, and I, you know, maybe Paul Hogan for uh, Wolf Creek sequel. I don't know. Just, just going for the joke there. <laughs> just saying, he needs that term. Um, I, I don't know, though. I think some of what happened with him had to do with him become. Uh, becoming a born-again Christian at the turn of the 90s. So Flipper is a Christian allegory. No, but he definitely took a turn towards really family-friendly stuff. Oh, oh yeah, but now well, I'm just... now time to do so. Yeah. I think that might explain some of what happened there. Well, now I'm just thinking about crucifying dolphins, so... Well, Sorry. I mean, the, fir- the first... Basically, the film where the bottom fell out for him was Almost an Angel in 1990. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which was, came, you know, after he became born again. And that does have some allegorical elements, now that you mention it. <laughs> right. Well, but, uh, I had recently uh, watched, um, I, I just have a few more that I own or that had ended up in my DVD queue, Woody Allen movies, watched, uh, Vicky Christina Barcelona a couple nights ago loved it but I mean 
I don't know. I guess it's everything's a thin allegory for everything. Like every Woody, Woody Allen movie is basically just a clever take on his relationship troubles, which is kind of a disturbing idea. <laughs> but but in the but in the eighties, you had a lot more competition for comedy. We were getting all sorts of people out on Saturday Night Live alone. But we were also seeing people like Danny DeVito jump to the big screen. Right, which was a long time coming. I mean, I remember him in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which... Yeah, he got, yeah, he got started in the mid-70s. And um, it took a little while. Yeah, now that I think about it, though, isn't it kind of like we traded our uh, Saturday Night Live TV show for the movies, essentially? Because aside from Eddie Murphy, there's really nothing much eventful uh, until 89, I mean, 87, 88 or so on Saturday Night Live. Right, because the show was went under kind of a transition in the mid-80s. And we, there was just this idea back then that shows just didn't run that long. And Saturday Night Live, by the time Murphy left for good, was, you know, it was going on 10 years already. And it was something NBC wanted to, wasn't sure they wanted to keep around. They brought Lord Michaels back for season 11, which is the season where they tried bringing in people who are already getting famous, like Robert uh, Downey Jr. and Joan Cusack and Randy Quaid. Funny, and, I, I don't recall Joan Cusack on Saturday Night Live. I, I know Quaid, I know Robert Downey Jr. Uh, they were all re- in that season. Rest, rest in peace, Robert Downey Sr., actually just throwing yeah. that out there uh putney swope i really gotta check the runtime on that one it is under 90 all right so it's dad's got a copy of it so <laughs> have you seen putney swope yeah i got around to it not long after i came of age for watching r-rated movies oh okay so i went with private parts you went with one of the greatest satires <laughs> of all time uh, that's, anyway. why, that's why that's why you're the top top critical mind in central illinois so <laughs> well with okay try and get my thoughts here right and 87 comedies, but, okay season two was in season 11 as well but general consensus is they couldn't really form an ensemble because they were all coming from different angles well yeah it, joan cusack damon so. wayans was in that season yeah uh, but Joan Joan Cusack is a is a you know Chicago's equivalent to the uh, Actors Studio or Juilliard. I mean, the, with the Cusack's education, right? So they they really didn't know if they were going to keep the show around after that season. So and when they did, Lauren Michaels did basically have to start fresh. Mm-hmm. There were only a handful of people who survived that season. Yes, I'm almost that. literally because the last skit in that year's season finale, which was when George Steinbrenner hosted, has uh, the studio getting set on fire, and Lorne Michaels only rescues John Lovitz in the cliffhanger ending. Bill Hartman, I think, survived. He was in that Steinbrenner. No, in episode. truth, uh, they <laughs> in truth they kept around some of the others too because that was Dennis Miller's first season. Mm-hmm. They, kept, they kept around a few of the others but right. yeah but Mil- and- miller is more of a tool like you know 
he wasn't really going to give you sketches for the most part. Well, no, he wasn't. He went to Weekend Update right away. Mm-hmm. But in any case, I'm tying this back to Spaceballs. The comedy environment was very competitive at the time. And I think there was some exhaustion with the spoof movie by that point. Well, that's that's interesting because all I could really think of spoof stuff up until Spaceballs because I can't really say there was any uh, Mel Brooks parody films in the uh, 80s except for... Um, well, it's part of it. Except he, for uh, History this, of the World, you know. Well, that's the thing. He had taken this extended break from directing movies after History of the World. He, yeah, he only has 11 directed films which is yeah it's a, it's a remarkable body of work in that it is relatively small compared to a lot of directors who worked o- over similar time spans yeah uh just curious because um jessica quaz and i were talking about the fact that i mean i love the producers um and we came to the to the equation we need lynn manuel miranda to come up with a space balls the musical um I mean, if it worked for the producers, which is the only non-parody that I've really seen of his. Are you too familiar with, um, I mean, I mean, I, I got to get around to seeing to be or not to be or silent movie, but what's right. your, what's your exposure to his uh, non-parody? Uh, beyond the producers, I haven't, I had tried to track down to be or not to be, but that is current. That does not appear to be streaming. Actually, right now, a lot of it's pretty hard to find Mel Brooks's stuff right now on streaming services. No, the only the only way I really saw saw to be or not to be available is in the uh, like eight movie Blu-ray set somewhere. Yeah, because I think that's the one Shout Factory did. More than likely, because he they've been working pretty extensively with Brooks lately. He helped them curate an Anne Bancroft box set. Well, I'm just glad he's actually doing work. I mean, if you got the time to drive 95 miles per hour on the PCH every night, you got to put a little work in. But uh, I, I imagine he might have slowed down that now that Carl Reiner has passed. I know. That's yeah. A... But uh, no, he's uh, contributed to a lot of the recent Shout Factory sets in one way or another. And I think... In any case, he had taken the six-year break off because, for reference, he didn't direct to be or not to be. And he was doing a lot of producing at the time and with uh, Brooks Films and was doing quite well. Although, I think another thing was running into the problem Spaceballs had was the production of Solar Babies had gotten out of hand. Okay under the brooks film shingle oh you see i I just presumed it was an mgm ua thing but eh. (laughs) well they distributed it yes right so i'm just saying oh that's standard operating procedure but yeah uh brooks films produced that one and that was a thanksgiving 86 release and the production on that he was quasi supervising got way out of hand and the film wound up doing very poorly. And this is all while he's working, getting space balls, space balls ready to go. Mm. 
So I guess there were some financial issues at the time they were dealing with. There is a How Did They Get Made episode on Solar Babies, and the week afterward, they had an extended interview with Brooks where he talked about what exactly happened. You see, I haven't seen... With How Did This Get Made, I don't usually listen to the episode unless I've seen the movie. Right. So, I mean, but that that's, that's gold right there. There are many episodes they have between their full-blown uh, live mm-hmm. shows. Um. But uh, something we did uh, think about, because um, I was uh, as I was editing uh, the audio I had from Jessica, um, she was. Uh, we did mention the fact that I don't know how I let it slip that I didn't know if Lucas. I obviously knew Lucas had approved the Spaceballs project. I mean, you had the alien scene done by ILM, but um, so I mean that. Oh, was that? using the advertising or anything like that because that could have probably helped it out that lucas had approved of it yes i don't know the famously the key issue was that they had to minimize any merchandising for the film oh yeah (laughs) the irony there (laughs) yep no yeah lucas that's I mean, Lucas hadn't directed anything. He only really had the uh, um, Indiana Jones franchise that were bona fide hits. Yeah, it is I mean, interesting to look at how the these major directors and creatives were faring in the 80s when they were producing other people's projects. What happened... You know, you well, I know Lucas did a lot of. I knew, I knew Lucas did a lot of stuff where he didn't take credit. Like, I think it was a, uh, I mean, pretty much Lawrence Kasdan he created, um, by pro- producing under the table. Or, you know, under the table. I think was it uh, Body Heat. Was that? It wasn't exactly under the table with Body Heat. Well, yeah, but he didn't really want his name attached to it because of his wholesomeness. that's that's at least what the screen drafts episode about doing a lucas draft which ended up sucking and uh, i don't want to hear from those drafters ever again i have to can you pause for a minute i have to go get something yeah take your time while my big sis is away let me remind you that it helps if you give us those five stars reviews and subscriptions on all the podcast services i could also use some music to bring in as an intro to the podcast you know if you have a good source of royalty free stuff or you want to compose something talk to me and i'll gladly work something out with you rust the bus zero seven g at gmail.com is probably the best way to get a hold of me and Otherwise, let's go and give you that Star Wars content I wanted by bringing back on Jessica Quaz. I was very biased while watching it. And usually I'm, if you listen to my podcast, I'm extremely critical of movies that I even like. But this one, it has, you know, the nostalgia factor that we get, you know, always gets us. And so for me, as I was trying to be critical, I was still like, I'm enjoying this. I think this is fun. And it's hard it's hard to like when you have such a love for movies like that, it's so hard to like keep the critical brain going and being like, "Okay, well that didn't really work. That was a little much." I'm just like, "You know what? 
this is silly and wacky. I'm here for it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm a purist, you could say, when it comes to Star Wars. The originals are, are my jam. And then in the, uh, this the sequel trilogy we had Benicio del Toro doing whatever the hell he was doing <laughs> you know we love an an anti-hero like a, a weird messy like said so scoundrel but like has a good heart and will like do the right thing like that makes a complex and fun character um and you know I think that's why I, I love like the originals is because we have Han and like you said Lando who it's like we love him. Can we trust him? I think we can. I think he's going to do the right thing. That adds a level of, like, suspense, sort of, that I'm really drawn to. And I will say, too, like, even though Empire Strikes Back is my number one, it's so hard for me to rank the, definitively the movies. It's always changing. But I will say what also I think on this topic why people like Rogue One is because that's a whole gang of scoundrels. I think there is something when we're having these like sci-fi adventure movies to have your sort of like rough and tough but maybe he's got a good heart like what's up with this complex person I think that just kind of draws us in and it's fun to have that as a juxtaposition to like say like in Star Wars Luke Skywalker like our pure good boy it's like okay cool but I want someone who's like in it and that's what I think Han does so, <laughs> I took a long time to watch Solo because I did not like the idea of it. I was like, you know what? We don't need this. Like, let him be. I would all, I'd be all in for like a Lando origin, especially if it's Donald Glover. But, so it took me a long time to watch it. And once I did, I'll, I agree it was fine, but there was so much plot, like, I, and I can, I pay, I pay attention to plot, I can follow a plot, I'm not, like, it doesn't usually go above my head, but for that, it was like, okay, we're here, we're here, we're here, and now we're going here, and now we're going here, and, oh, he has the, the gold, uh, dices that, oh, now we know where you got that, like, it was just like, okay, this is too much. I, I will say, though, that I was very hesitant. I liked him, and then I thought, oh, well, yeah, he kind of looks like Han, but I thought that that might be the issue, is that the actor playing Han needs to be Han. And I will say, I thought he did a wonderful job. Like, I was very impressed with him. Um, and I think visually it was a great movie. I think they were trying to, like, balance this origin versus action versus kind of heisty thing that didn't work. Um, it, was, it was fine, yeah. I will say, though, like, I am so into Donald Glover as Lando and I would love more of that because that's the thing too like with Kira like we all know how Han's story evolves and ends so Kira felt to me like she's kind of like pointless as a love interest um, although I really did like her character so I think having it be her and, and Lando okay I'm there <laughs> So yeah, eighty-seven, uh, busy with comedies. Not we're not we're you know quality, but people wanted comedies, obviously. And we're discussing so, the pursuit. Listen, mm -hmm. They released Spaceballs in the middle of summer. Yeah, not a great move. There's no question there. But uh, 
like you see that's that's how i think brian our cousin in california and i uh talked about it because i was talking about dragnet from that episode of siskel and ebert he was talking about space balls so uh-huh so yeah i guess none of us saw it so huh but uh when it comes to uh space balls and the star wars how important star wars is i think back to my time in the peoria wrestling scene where oh yeah we had one halloween where we all wanted to do spaceball characters. I just didn't want to do makeup at the time. So, and so obviously I was getting the yogurt nomination (sighs) stature thing, I guess. Um, But uh, I guess, you know, that really speaks about spaceballs though, that, you know, I had, we had so many people wanting to do that, but you tell them, Oh, and what did you think about the the prequel trilogy? You know, and you get a dude. I didn't even watch the originals, man. So, <laughs> yeah. Fun trips from uh, Peoria to Iowa monthly with that guy. <laughs> so, but I, you know, was uh, Spaceballs a big VHS thing, I guess, is where we're going with this. I think that in cable was how most people found it down the line. Mm-hmm. So, I think another issue that we haven't touched on is that even by 1987, with the fad having cooled off a bit, we'd already had a lot of Star Wars parodies on short form. There was the Quickie's Short Hardware Wars. In uh, no, I'm, I'm. Yeah, no, they they tackled that right away. <laughs> I mean, everybody was jumping on it, and by 1987, it already felt like kind of an old hat thing. I guess Star Wars is really the where it is because of the people who didn't weren't around for the first uh, go of it, I suppose. Because you know they are handing the v- VHS tapes off to their kids. I mean, the entire reason we're doing a Spaceballs episode is because Jessica Quaz from Second Chance Movies' favorite film is Empire Strikes Back. And I think it was pretty much the parents, because she was only seven when prequels started. Right. But there's a love for Star Wars that was... So it's it's weird when you look at the uh, Star Wars fandom, because... Yeah, you have the kids who have grown up now with the prequels being their movies, you know, the Clone Wars being gospel. Right. Uh, but there's that in the, there was that 10-year period say from 87 to 97. Uh-huh. Where you have kids who are just I mean, this is Star Wars is basically a bible in a sense. You know, our parents gave us the good book and we're supposed to you know, listen to the cliff notes that Sunday school is <laughs> and uh, imagine if they would have just put the made crappy little I'm, I'm maybe I didn't see them but uh, judging that it was a uh, Magoo and me and Gerbert is the Christian VHS stuff instead of you know fancy looking gospels <laughs> Or at least that's what I saw. You know, imagine where Christianity would be, though, if, you know, give Jesus a lightsaber just to cut the bread. 
and toast it. So, all right. So, sorry about that. What little uh, diversion there? I mean, it's this is this is great, uh, Rory, because it's basically um, what I'm gonna put on from Jessica is basically how fun the feeling of fun. But you are an excellent teacher. We need these history lessons. Well, enough. Well, what you're talking about passing it down. This was the whole reason for thinking about uh, what they call, I think, the seven-year rule in the wrestling industry. Ah, nice. Which is where you can, when you, where you can recycle a gimmick, and that was why. And we brought this up earlier. This was why Disney used to release, re-release their animated features on a seven-year basis. Because there was always a new crop of kids who hadn't seen movies yet by then. So to them, it was new. Mm -hmm. And this is why we still have the Disney vault thing today. And while it's not a seven-year rotation anymore, the availability of the films on VHS and then DVD is kept kind of artificially low. So this sort of thing can still apply. The streaming model is kind of breaking that sort of thing. And now everything feels like it's available at once the operative word being feels but with disney especially keeping all this stuff in the public eye to get a new group of consumers every few years is a big part of their business strategy and hmm. go ahead if you look at which 80s movies and franchises still have have higher Q factors now than others. It's why Star Wars still gets talked up so much is that they keep keep it in the public eye. They keep doing new content for it. Mm -hmm. Whereas with something like E.T. the Extraterrestrial or Back to the Future even, they've pretty been dormant since the early 90s at the latest. Well, with... with, uh, I was there for the uh, Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd uh, panel uh, Wizard mm-hmm. World, and basically, and I think it was the producer who came up. I can't recall his name. It'd probably pop off the top of your head like nothing. Basically, uh, Bob Gale. Thank you. Yep, exactly. Basically, he gave us a, as I like to say, context warning, basically telling people, don't ask for sequels or remakes before the panel <laughs> began. <laughs> they are very protective of that. So until... Mm-hmm. Robert Zemeck's croaks. I don't think you'd have to worry. I, I just don't think it'll be in the public eye. Right. So. Anyhow, I wouldn't want a guy of Parkinson's driving the DeLorean right now. Okay, there's our tasteless joke of the podcast. Last week's was me saying Chris Benoit did us all a favor ending the Vince McMahon faking his death angle. So, but now I'm thinking with a seven year rule and you brought up professional wrestling, it's like, okay, so you're telling me we need to quickly produce Mickey club t-shirts like the bullet club stuff and just profit until we get that cease and desist. I wouldn't try it. Okay. Well, they're a little quicker than, the guys in Stanford, I guess. 
WWE's headquarters. Right. So um, that was an idea of a podcast I threw out on Twitter, though. Um, listening to Second Chance movies and hearing uh, a lot of you know people's issues with storytelling, and it's like, well, as a professional wrestler, it makes total sense what they're doing. Like maybe that should be a podcast, basically. All right, something that people question about storytelling method, and then a professional wrestler breaks it down and says why it's good. The well actually podcast that will make you very popular. Everybody <laughs> loves the well actually guy online. Oh, you see, I know. Well, you see, me, you and I are totally different. I was the web. I mean, I taught you how to make websites, but I could care less about the internet for the most part. I mean, I can get myself lost in the YouTube wormhole, but. <laughs> well, sure. Who can, who doesn't? Yeah. But, uh, I really don't know what's going on half the time. So, so we had the seven year thing and I don't know. Is that kind of why we didn't really get anything uh, between, I mean, yes, we had life stinks, which I think people immediately forgot between uh, space balls and Robin hood men in tights, which I don't know. I would kind of say Robin Hood Men in Tights is the superior movie. I don't know if I'd say that. It's another one people seem to have come around to over the years. Well, I thought that was gold from the beginning. I mean, this isn't science, in Robin Hood's defense, it isn't science fiction where somebody created their own universe. This is supposedly historical fiction mm-hmm. where we knew exactly what was supposed to be done. So when we go in throw in something like the 12th century Fox delivery system. <laughs> We're all down with it. And imagine space balls with Dave Chappelle. That's all I'm saying. Um, but, you know, we had John Candy though, so I wouldn't trade that for a moment, which, right. which was something I came to uh, and asked when I was interviewing Jessica over this movie was Chewbacca needed a tail. I mean, I'm just saying something, somebody, somebody had the, you know, Chewbacca was never really that annoying a character and not to say that barf is, but the moment he whips, you know, he whips his tail into Lone Star's face. It's kind of like, yeah, they're onto something. It's funny to look at something like Spaceballs after all the Star Wars knockoffs, including something like Captain EO, which Lucas did help back. All right. Thank you for bringing Michael Jackson in here. So we're qualifying all questionable um, creators on this podcast. But you look at but you look at how everybody was trying to come up with new critters after Star Wars. Not just robots, but there's a whole bunch of them in Captain EO alone, and that movie's only 17 minutes long and for a theme park. I still loved it. I mean, I'm, I mean is, it, is it available anywhere in a theme park? Uh, no, none of the theme parks have it anymore. Oh, did Family Guy finally shut that one down? No, okay. it just, it just, I don't think after the initial novelty wore off of the revival, 
it didn't draw very big crowds. Well, I guess that's my problem with Disney World and Disneyland is just that we keep changing the parks. Like Chris Hardwick was uh, on the ID10T podcast, was talking with uh, the guy who played Abraham on uh, Walking Dead. So I know somebody you don't know. I re- I, I kind of zoned out halfway through his run on that show. Um, how it was just so much better when Disneyland and Disney World had rides that were just rides. Like Tomorrowland wasn't all about the franchises. Like, don't get me wrong. I like the Buzz Lightyear ride, but... Oh, this is a huge sticking point for the really big theme park fanatics is that we don't get as many original concepts anymore and that it has become too franchise-centric, especially in the parks that originally didn't rely heavily on pre-established characters. Right, like- precisely. I mean, that's that was the beauty of going to Tomorrowland. Like, if I wanted the new stuff, I'd go to MGM or Disney Studios, whatever bollocks you want to call it, or Epcot even. Right, I- but it's... it's- same time you can't treat places like they're museums either because kids' tastes change and okay doesn't lucas film own indiana jones hence disney owns indiana jones hence it belongs in a museum sorry i'll digress no i totally get that you're not going to you need to mix things up something has to be new every year there's no question about that yeah, but I know there are complaints about this creep going on with Epcot right now. Oh, don't say that, because, I mean, we're planning to be there in December. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. But I... but there's, I mean, they've added, they're adding the Ratatouille ride to France Pavilion. Well, just think that Ratatouille is Pixar's finest. Amen. I don't think it's their best film, but it, it's a good film. I will stand by screen drafts on that one. They rarely get uh, it right, but <laughs> like Life Force is the greatest canon movie. Are you no, gonna? No, I don't. Yeah. Oh, don't give me a break in one. <laughs> but with, but yeah, it's it's bringing in Ratatouille as a rock. Ride is one thing, but replacing the Norway boat ride with the frozen attraction is yeah, that was step from the pale. Okay, yes, that was bad, but I don't think I think when they immediately did it, we didn't realize how big Frozen was. I mean, Frozen made a hell of a lot of money, but until I don't think until Frozen Two did everybody finally surrender to it. I don't know that it happened pretty quickly. As I remember it. So when was Frozen released? I mean, it had to be released before the last time we went to Disney World. It was released in 2013. Yeah, so... Disney started working it into the parks as much as they could have. Because there was that demand. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think I wanted to get to a permanent attraction, they decided to use Epcot when they could have been using the studio's if not for the fact they were already starting to work on the Star Wars and right. Toy Story Land. Yeah, no, the, well, Toy Story Land, I don't really need too much of myself. But uh, it was a professional wrestler, Zack Ryder, the moment he walked into 
Um, Matt Cardona, I'm sorry. Don't don't call him by his Connecticut slave name. Um, who famously gets told about the time where like a bunch of the wrestlers went it went to the new Star Wars attraction and he saw the crawl underneath his feet and he claimed this was the greatest day of his life. <laughs> so and this is coming from a guy and I, I'm telling the story as a guy who made sure I saw every possible video in the star tours took me five times, but I did the math. I researched on the internet. I've seen every possible video from star tours. And that is the greatest thing I did in 2015. Um, yeah, so I don't think I got around to seeing the uh, Norwegian boat ride at Epcop that time. Had fun doing the uh, Phineas and Ferb Japanese mystery, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. We're really talking more about the history, which I like, because I think Jessica, when I put her audio on about just telling you how awesome Spaceballs is, <laughs> will really pay off. Uh, and make this probably the greatest episode of 90 for chill, the podcast of all time. <laughs> but um, have you rewatched Spaceballs in, uh, recently? I suppose I should ask. Uh, no, no, it's, it's not. And I don't think, I mean, it's, it's just a very memorable film to begin with. I mean, for the sheer fact that I, I think there's got to be a movie out there and I'm sure there's S, uh, SCTV sketches, but when else do we really get to see Ron, uh, Ron, Rick, eh, sorry, Rick Moranis be a twat. Hmm. I mean, he was loving it, doing it in uh Spaceballs. Hmm. I mean, his character gets instant karma about every time he does something bad. Right. But and I'm wondering where are those action figures that he was playing with? I'm just saying the molds are there. And at least Dark Helmet, Lone Star, Barth, and um our Druish pr- princess Vespa mm-hmm. were available. You know, the molds are there. I'm just saying. Which kind of makes me think, though, in that in that scene with the toys, it's like, knock on my door. You didn't see anything, did you? Yeah. No, I didn't see you playing with your dolls again. Yeah. And it's like, well, perhaps he didn't see him playing with the dolls. He's just used to seeing him play with the dolls. Yeah. Um. Interesting, though, I was thinking of a tattoo idea based on the little necklace Lone Star had. Hmm. You know, like just the uh, hieroglyphs, say, above my Imperial logo emblem tattoo. (laughs) I think I'm a prince. I don't know. Maybe and maybe that's why I haven't uh, had that much luck with love, I suppose. Which makes me think of our um, 
Rick Moran. I'm sorry, our Ivan Reitman podcast with uh, comedian Andrew TD, and he was bringing up the fact when I was saying that um, the fear of political correctness is going to ruin comedy, and it's like, no, you just have to nail it out of the park when you do it. You can't half-ass this. Like Dave Chappelle nails it all the time, and he's definitely not PC. And but he brought up the fact that you know you talk about Blazing Saddles being co-written by Rick uh, by Richard Pryor, but Richard Pryor did primarily did stuff like the Mongo stuff, uh, Mongo just pawn in Game of Life. But let's see, so. As you say, we're going through the history. I'm going through. Uh, you're not that big on the Star Wars uh, post Force Awakens, correct? I have never seen the sequel trilogy films as yet, although I have seen the two spinoffs. Oh, well, that is interesting. I don't think anybody really argues the quality of Rogue One, but. Well, uh, some people do, but I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. I mean,. The only thing about Rogue One was that I hated sending that text message to Dad afterwards and Nick. I think it was my uh, brother and our brother-in-law, Nick. Yeah. Like, no, you can't show this one to our nephew John. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty solid until Darth Vader just does his thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm not gonna say like I hate hate to say it. But you're, and I don't think you've, pro- I think you probably, am I wrong in saying that you really only saw Phantom Menace? I did eventually work, well, I was their opening night for Attack of the Clones. Okay. And after that, I felt like I have to tap out of this. Okay. It's not doing anything for me at this point. I did watch, because I do have Disney Plus, I did work my way through what I had seen of, had not yet seen of Revenge of the Sith last year. Because I'd oh. seen most of the backstrap. But again, I really wasn't impressed by it. Well, Second Chance Movies, a podcast hosted by Jessica Quaz and Joe Harper, um, did say that I think uh, with time, the prequels are fine. Well... I'm not going to really excuse Attack of the Clones, I suppose. But, hey, we're talking Attack of the Clones, and this is something I brought up to Jessica, and I guess I could bring up something also as well that I forgot to. Um, Do you find the Lone Star Dark Helmet duel kind of similar to how uh, Yoda fought Count Dooku? Now you mention it, it is hard not to laugh at the very concept of the Yoda Count Doku Doku duel. Right, but I'm just saying it's kind of like, oh, well, we need to do this, we need to do that, which is kind of you know stipulations keep falling into the the fight between Helmet and Lone Star. Yeah, which I think has the greatest lesson in all of cinema. And that's why evil will always prevail. Because good, good. Is, 
is dumb. Um, and then it's weird though. Watch rewatching it, and it's kind of like okay, Rogue One is all the finale is all based around getting past the shield on um the Imperial planet. Is that too far removed from trying to break through the oxygen field on planet Druidia? I think you're thinking the overthinking this one. Well, I can't use, which I failed to mention to Jessica, the fact that um, the Eagle Five went to hyperspeed inside an atmosphere, which J.J. Abrams used a bunch in Force Awakens. So I'm just saying that maybe Spaceballs has a greater influence than we want to acknowledge. It's possible. Because there's no greater nerd in Hollywood than J.J. Abrams. And that's saying something. If that's the best nerd we have, I'm not sure we're in great shape right now. It explains a lot. I'm saying there's no greater nerd. I mean, you and I are Gen X. We had Tarantino and we had Smith. And look, I think Yoga Hosers is a classic B-movie. And I will stand by Red State any day of the week. I'm just saying that um, I think we've just fallen into the hands of commercial nerds now. Hmm. I.e. J.J. Abrams. Like I was recently saw an interview with Tarantino with uh, Bill Maher on politi- uh, I was about to say politically incorrect obviously a real time with Bill Maher and he gave me a little optimism when it comes to cinema who is basically just saying, look, it's right. You know, it just comes in the hills and valleys and we're eventually going to get another hill. Um, at least in terms of creativity and stuff. And Tarantino's brilliance has survived all those valleys. My opinion, I don't know how much Tarantino you've followed since, I imagine you probably saw Kill Bill at by some point. I mean, Cable, as you say. I'm, I'm not really interested in Tarantino that much. I've seen Pulp Fiction, and I don't think that's my wavelength. Oh no, I I totally understand that. Um, I would say give Inglorious Bastards a chance. I mean, the guy saved cat people. <laughs> that's all I need to say about Tarantino. Despite I love cat people when I saw it finally. It's it's my kind of weird. I think Malcolm McDowell personally is my kind of weird though. <laughs> Lots of love for Tank Girl. I don't really think Tank Girl's as great a movie as we like to remember it now since it was directed by a woman and it's a comic book movie, but it's an important movie nonetheless. I mean, Tanker, uh, have you seen Tanker all? Because it is Shout Factory. Well, I'm not saying you have to rush out and get it, but I think it's, uh, well, no, it's on Shout Factory now. So I was about to say, "Ah, I think if you go and look at your Amazon, my Amazon, your Amazon Fire Stick, I purchased it, but Mm -hmm. I think I purchased it with iTunes, so I don't think it qualifies. Um, But, you know, next time I'm over there, I have an Apple Plus uh, subscription 
because of updating my phone. So, hey, I'll work on that for you. That should give you access to all my digital purchases. So, well, I don't want to deprive you Life Force. <laughs> Okay, I've I mean, seen Life Force. I yes. don't need to worry about Life Force. <laughs> I know, I know. It just oh gosh, that is such a train wreck of a movie. I mean everything it does so wrong, it just makes it so right. Oh, but let me go through my notes on Spaceballs. Thank you very much for your patience with me, as always. The Poetic Critic, that's all one word on Letterboxd. And, hey, you've got quite the influence because uh, Second Chance Movies has followed you as well. I noticed that, and I appreciate it. All right. Okay, so I guess I do have a question about do we really need monks or um, high on their moral characters in our sci-fi? Because, I mean, maybe Spaceballs is so cool because everybody's a scoundrel. And I, I always say that's why Guardians of the Galaxy worked was there was no Luke Skywalker. And I think I say that's why the prequels are not everybody's cup of tea because it is all pretty much samurai movie stuff by that point. I don't really have an opinion there. Okay. Just talking samurais though, and I know iTunes has that special going on. Seen much Toshiro Mife, uh, Mifune? I've seen some of his work with Kurosawa, yes. Okay. I'm sorry to question your quality as the smartest mind in the heart of Illinois when it comes to cinema. Is there even a film critic really in the in the HOI, you know, the Peoria to Bloomington, Bloomington to Galesburg area? I don't know. Because we got, I don't want to call, well, I can't say I've been impressed by the guys who show up on our local channel in Champaign Urbana. They're smart guys, but uh, not to say that I don't think I'm wiser. (laughs) I'm just saying, I think there might be a market out there for you, Rory. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, all right. Going through the notes. I didn't bring this up with um, I guess it's just a statement about Star Wars and I think it's a reasonable one like should we really be teaching religion to adults like Luke Skywalker learns the force kills a few million people by destroying the Death Star Uh, people become adults who didn't really have faith end up becoming extremists for religion kill thousands of people just an observation. Like, once you give people knowledge of what might be right, people do crazy things. Just a societal question, I suppose. I'm not going to comment. Okay. All right. 
Well, actually, I did get this one answered. How much direction did George Lucas actually have on Empire? Uh, there's a joke in Spaceballs when, you know, let's all get some sleep because we got to get up early at the crack of dawn. Why do we need to do that? Because when that sun comes up, oh, an excellent dissolve. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, I don't think... Uh, and I'm not going to rewatch RoboCop 2 anytime soon. I'm just saying, do we really need all those star wipes? <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we talked about it last week about how I think Deadpool needs to be introduced into the Star Wars franchise, but or at least some kind of Jedi or dare I say Oh, I think this is a million dollar idea. Um, Donald Glover's Lando Calrissian is Deadpool in the Star Wars. I know some people would chew for that one. All right. And this is something I did mention. How the hell did tim burton really screw up planet of the apes when spaceball does it very well at the end did you end up actually ever watching tim burton's planet of the apes no all right yeah that's like uh the convenience store guy talking to chris hey chris you ever seen kroll no yeah, you don't need to see Kroll. <laughs> so, I don't know. You love Spaceballs. I think everybody loves Spaceballs. And when it comes down to it, as I said, I know people who don't like Star Wars who love Spaceballs. Um, what do you think about a Spaceballs musical, though? I feel that we've had too many adaptations already. Well, that's kind of funny because when Jessica was talking about, well, I wasn't really aware of parody movies until Spaceballs. And you and I, um, you know, being eight and ten in all respectives, you know, Naked Gun was 88, correct? Right. I mean, and then Dad quickly showed us Airplane after that, which is kind of disappointing when I rewatched Airplane in the brief nudity just isn't is just very brief you know as a developing child seeing airplane for the first time like boobs had a longer effect on me so um but what i'm getting at is like you know with parody movies and i think in the end when you mention uhf to somebody i think was pre because i think that you had because i don't really think any of the naked gun sequels are that worthwhile so you pretty much have the hot shots franchise do you think this was like do you think the window on parody features really was say only about three years i don't know it's just that looking at <clears throat> how Drew and Scott over at 80s all over handled it. 
Well, they didn't the have that many great ones. Such long, yeah. Like, it didn't happen until Naked Gun. I mean, you had Airplane, and I would say you had Kentucky like Fried Movement. Wave. I'm the sorry? second wave. Yeah. The, the late 80s, early 90s is more the second wave. Right, but, I mean, we didn't really have a good parody movie till Scary Movie, and then they screwed that up a, a year later. Hmm. So I'm just saying, like, I think we hit the peak right away. I mean, with the second wave, like, we only had maybe four must-see movies out of it. I mean, you had a lot of uh, great comedies that were parodies, yes, like uh, Fear of Black Hat. But the Mad Cat parody film, I think, like, we really only had five years at best of it. Do you agree, disagree? It doesn't really matter to me. So, you're like me. After Hot Shots Part Two, we had basketball, and then everything's pretty forgettable. I guess that's one way of looking at it. Basketball isn't that great. Oh, you loved it when we saw it opening weekend in 98, when we were like one of eight people in a, two of eight people in a theater. That movie goes on too long. It's under 90 minutes. All right, all right. We're not going to... Huh. Well, let's just say it ended at basketball because I've on listening to non-movie park podcasts trying to be hip and cool with their movie references. They're talking about Freddy Got Fingered, and it's like, oh, God, comedy is dead. I don't know why they're worried about... Oh, PC is going to kill comedy. No, we killed it ourselves. <laughs> but um, so I guess a concluding statement on Spaceballs? I don't have any concluding statements. Mm-hmm. Favorite character from Spaceballs? Hmm. I would, it's hard to tell because I like the bad guys a lot. I think President Scrooge is underrated. Yep, I'll give you that one. Dark Helmet is just too easy an answer. Yeah. But, uh, um, I hate to say it, though. Was this John Candy's greatest performance? I don't know. He was really killing it for a while in the 80s. Was he? Like, he was making a lot of money for people, but I can't really say Armed and Dangerous was any good. I think everybody looks at the great outdoors with an over overly being overly fond of it. I mean, we all loved him in home alone, but I think that was more SC subconscious SCTV reunion. I don't know. Sorry to leave it on a downer like that. (sighs) This is what cloning should be used for. Like, we got to find those Caminos and give us an army of John Candies. So, but, but as, as you say, I mean, obviously, because it's nuts. Uh, my copy of Spaceballs on DVD came in a two-pack, which is an odd two-pack because it was 20th Century Fox and MGM. It was a two-pack of 
young Frankenstein in Spaceballs. And I don't think anybody questions that young Frankenstein is the greatest parody film of all time. Yeah. Just curious, what would you put up against it? Because, I mean, Blazing Saddles is probably laugh for minute, but as a narrative, I would say Young Frankenstein. Well, I'm just going to leave that to other people to debate. Okay. Well, Jessica Quaz will speak glowingly of uh, Young Frankenstein with her sound bites on this podcast. But um, so I guess my question to you is you are the genius of Central Illinois cinema. Has anybody approached you for a podcast besides for? Look, the poetic critics said it, so there's got to be validity to it. Because I know you are a Jeff Goldblum gold mine. <laughs> or are you just a little, still a little too cautious to just devote yourself to being a internet personality? You're cutting out. We might okay. as well just wrap this up. All right. Well, okay, so... Uh, to find you, that is letterboxd.com slash the poetic critic, all one word, correct? So, as I said, uh, letterboxd.com slash the poetic critic. Yes. All right. Uh, anything else you got to promote at this time? No. All right. Well, thank no, you. Well, thank you for being such a great sense source of history in cinema, as always. Um, if you uh, need to follow uh, the pot, this podcast, uh, cat at cat bus for us on Twitter, main event of the dead.com is all my writing and you can find this podcast anywhere. Thank you very much again to the poetic critic for being such a genius of cinema. And you're welcome. Thank you. And we will, uh, we'll have more content for you next week. Uh, if you want to be on the show, send an email to rustabus07 at gmail.com or send me a direct message at catbusterus on Twitter. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Rory. You're welcome. Can I hear a wahoo? The combo of space wells and producers, I'm there. I'll I'll pay for the budget. I don't care. I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, it is a time. It is a time. I, my friends and I, when it, around the time it first came out, were in love with it because it was. I'm a huge horror fan. I'm a huge musical fan. Best of both both worlds. Paris Hilton's best work. <laughs> like it's just like it's just such a unique kind of film that I I would love. Like, more of that, where it's musicals, kind of in the vein of, like, a Sweeney Todd or, like, Repo, where it's just, like, dark, gritty, weird, and, like, bops, bop songs with it. (laughs) I mean, I think that a Spaceballs musical parodying the... I mean, we could do a whole trilogy. We can do one for the OGs, one for the prequels, one for the sequels. Just make it a whole Spaceballs opera with Lin-Manuel writing the music. I'm in. Lin-Manuel is a little too, like, an actual serious artist. (laughs) 
But I think he'd contribute. I mean, he did Moana, and that's a fun soundtrack. So he might come up with a song here or there. That's a good point, too. Weird Al. Oh, my God. Yeah, let's get him on this. Long live Flash. You've saved your ass. Have a nice day. Mickey was in that Wuhan lab. You know it. <laughs> Just kidding, I don't believe it. <laughs>